Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, don't give up with the luck of the Irish. Danny O'Connor could still win uh, that Ohio uh, special Ohio congressional race in Ohio's 12. Even if he doesn't, we sure scared the hell out of them. What do you say, folks? Hello, hello, hello on a Wednesday Yep, the morning after uh, a lot of primaries and one special election yesterday all around the country. Here we are on the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with you with us. And um, we've got uh, lots to talk about, as always. Uh, kind of quiet on the Donald Trump front yesterday, but again, the election news was big. And so was uh, the continuing trial of Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, his former deputy business associate, the former deputy campaign manager of the uh, Donald Trump campaign, on the witness stand being grilled by the defense team, uh, trying to undermine his credibility, and Gates admitting to even more crimes, plus uh, an affair with a woman in London. So uh, we'll bring you up to date on all that's going on. Uh, with our great guests today, Nahal Tuzi from Politico, Eugene Scott from the Washington Post, and Kevin Robiar from uh, HuffPost. And you, our most important guest of all, you know what's going on. Well, you'll know a lot more <laughs> once we tell you more about it. Uh, and then send us your comments on the news of the day. Sound off on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. What the hell, Donald Trump's already up using Twitter. You can, too. Send us your comments on the news of the day. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All right, just a couple of other stories making news. We go to Houston, Texas, where yesterday there was a man on the run who had been accused of exposing himself around town. He went up to someone's house. This person was a woman by the name of, only identified as Granny Jean, is what she calls herself. There's a sign on her front door 
that says, save the drama for your mama. She's 68 years old, and the man showed up at her house and exposed himself, and she told him to get the hell away from her house or she would shoot him. Here is what she said. Some guy was pulled off his pants and uh, pulled his pants open and playing with his thing and ran up to my in my yard, and I told him to get away from my door that I would shoot him. Well, that is exactly what she did. When mm. he did not leave, she shot through the front door, shot the man in the chest. He is expected to survive, by the way. But uh, don't mess with Granny Jean, apparently. A little extreme. A little extreme. Sure. Look, I mean, uh, I'm not a gun person, but, like, I'm also anti-running around exposing yourself. That's true. But her life was not in danger, I think. The better better response would have been to laugh at him. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I don't feel too sorry about this guy. By the way, yesterday, this is stunning. Donald Trump and the Trump administration, it appears as though they are going to roll back some of the protections that we had in place to keep people from being exposed to asbestos. The EPA enacted significant... So we need more asbestos. Clearly. Just like we need dirtier cars. Yeah, the EPA enacted... Dirtier air and more asbestos. The EPA enacted what they're calling a a significant new use rule, which allows the government to evaluate asbestos use on a case-by-case basis. Just to give you some sort of a, a, a marking point here, uh, George W. Bush knew that asbestos was bad. Uh, hopefully this year we can get a good asbestos uh, reform out of the United States. You know, that asbestos. Asbestos. By the way, uh, this is crazy. This is crazy. Why would they want to allow more asbestos? I'm sorry. Why would? Why do you want dirtier cars? Why do you yeah, want sure. dirtier air? I sure. mean, no. But, yeah. Donald Trump just ask backers about everything. You know, these days, more and more, right? Like in the state of Maryland, like I mean, if you're going to rent. Th- yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, if you're going to rent a house, you're going to buy a house, you have to, like, it has to be expected yeah, yeah. for asbestos before you do that. That's the case in a lot of states. I mean, it, it, not everything that previous administrations have done to protect the American people is wrong. Right. Idiot. Right. Your job when you get elected is not to undo every good thing that's ever been done by anybody, Republican or Democrat. This is the Bill Press Show. Yep. Don't know yet. Danny O'Connor may not have won in Ohio, but he sure scared the hell out of him and still could win. What do you say, everybody? Here we go on Wednesday, Wednesday, August 8th. It is uh, the Bill Press Show. That's me, the Bill Press Show. That's you as well. We're all part of it, and it's good to have you part of it here Lots to talk about on this Wednesday, the morning after that special election in Ohio's 12th Congressional District. And primaries, uh, big primaries in Kansas, uh, in Michigan, and a great big ballot measure in Missouri, plus primaries in Missouri as well. Lots and lots to talk about, lots to cover. We will uh, bring you up to date with all the latest and the ongoing trial for uh, Paul Manafort over in Alexandria, Virginia. It was Rick Gates with a second day of drubbing and grilling on the part of defense, uh, the defense trying to undermine his credibility and bolster up uh, the credibility uh, to the extent that they could ever do so, of Paul Manafort. Frankly, I can't wait till Paul Manafort takes the stand and watch the prosecutors for Robert Mueller, who celebrated his 74th birthday yesterday, by the way. 
I'll watch the... I don't think Donald Trump sent him a birthday card. No? no. You don't think so? Not sure. <laughs> at least the White House didn't make any announcement about that. Uh, at any rate, you know Manafort's got to get the same treatment, man, when he gets on the stand and the prosecutors go after him. For all those reasons and more, so good to see you today as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on Free Speech TV nationwide, you're looking good out there in TV land, and hello, hello on the radio, statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks, all over Chicago and the greater Chicago area on WCPT. Uh, I want you to know, Donald Trump, of course, he is up in Bedminster, New Jersey. He doesn't want you to think he's on vacation. So every day they schedule one thing, like Last night, they had a dinner with some business leaders. So he's fly in. I mean, just a... Hardest working president in the history of yeah, the presidency. Right. Just though. a BS kind of PR thing. I mean, you know what? We've said this before. Presidents have a right to take a vacation, okay? You've never heard me criticize him for that. Barack Obama used to go up to Martha's Vineyard. In fact, he's going up uh, this week again. But as president, he went up to Martha's Vineyard for a couple of weeks. Good for him. George W. Bush used to go down. The only criticism we had of George uh, yeah. W. Bush, I remember, I remember distinctly, is that he chose to vacay in Crawford, Texas. All the time. Yeah. Now, we all said, if you want a vacation, Mr. President, this is fine. But, my Jesus, on that ranch down there in Crawford, Texas, cutting brush? Come on. Have a real vacay, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> go to Cancun or something like that. But at any rate. But Donald Trump doesn't want anybody to know he's on vacation. <laughs> it was very funny. So yesterday they said, well, he had to be on vacation because there were such extensive renovations going on at the White House. I was at the White House the other day. I never saw any sign of any work being done. There's no scaffolding around it. There's no construction crews or whatever. <laughs> so they put out a list yesterday of all the little uh, fix-it jobs that had to be done at the White House. Like the toilet on the second floor wasn't flushing correctly. Uh, there was a crack in the <laughs> in the plaster in one particular bedroom. There were all these little things like, you know, you would do on a weekend, you know, go out to yeah, Home, yeah. Home Depot or something and, and fix it up. But so at, at any rate, he is at Bedminster, New Jersey yet again today. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, you might be interested to know that today – is day 591 of the Donald Trump presidency, believe it or not, 591. Uh, today also marks the 104th day of 591 that Donald Trump has spent at a Trump property. Give me those numbers again. Give me those numbers again. 591 days total. Okay. 184 of them have been at a Trump property. God. Uh, 141 of them have been at a Trump golf course. 141 at a Trump. That's Trump. amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. So you know what? You want to know where this guy is spending his time, right? Uh, yeah. How about what is that? Um, that's about that's four and a half months, right? Yeah. Yes. Four, four and a half months. Yes. He has spent at his golf courses. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Not too bad. Yeah, I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep that in perspective when you think about our hardworking president 
uh, Donald Trump up in Bedminster, New Jersey. Yes, indeed. Here's uh, the big news, of course. All eyes on Ohio. All eyes on Ohio's 12th congressional district. Now, remember, th- this is a special election. This was a special election yesterday. Uh, so because uh, Tilbury, the uh, incumbent congressman, re- retired, resigned, just stepped down. So they had to have a special. And whoever wins this special is up again in November. So this is only good from now until November. Keep that in mind. And the two candidates that were running yesterday will be the same two candidates running in November. Keep that in mind. Still, it is hugely significant. And here's where things stand right now. This is one of those nights I hate in politics. Win or lose, I just like to know who won or lost. We're not sure in Ohio 12. At the moment, it is true, Republican Troy Balderson holds the slimmest of leads over Democrat Danny O'Connor. Where it stands right now is at uh, Balderson with 101,574 votes, or 50.2%. Danny O'Connor, 99,820 votes, or 49.3%, less than 1%, it's 1,754 votes that separate the two. And all night long, if you watched any of the coverage, it was back and forth. At one point, O'Connor had a big lead, and then other districts came in, more the more rural districts of that, of that gerrymandered district, Ohio 12, and the lead went back and forth. It ended up at that razor-thin, where it is today with a razor-thin uh, margin for for uh, for uh, Troy Balderson, uh, who um, kind of declared victory uh, last night. Here's Troy Balderson thanking because uh, it is true he wouldn't even have that razor th- razor thin margin. I think you could say unless Donald Trump had gone in there last week. I'd like to thank President Trump. Yeah! Uh, President That's Trump, crowd, whom, according to John Kasich, Governor of um, Ohio, who's certainly not a Donald Trump fan. According to John Kasich, Balderson didn't even invite Trump in, that Trump showed up on his, decided to go on his own. Uh, And Donald Trump, by the way, even though the networks and Associated Press, nobody has declared this seat yet as a win. They have not declared Balderson as a winner. It's too close to call. The Secretary of State of Ohio has not declared Balderson the winner. Uh, Donald Trump did last night. He tweeted that... I made the difference. I decided to go to Ohio, and I made the difference. Danny O'Connor, for his part, reminding everybody that this is just the first act. This is just the warm-up act for November, whatever the final results of yesterday's vote turns out to be. We went house to house. We made our case for change. We're going to make that case tomorrow. We're not stopping now. Tomorrow we rest, and then we keep fighting through to November. Oh, by the way, I will never get tired of candidates at the end of a race and how dead his voice is. Oh, I know. Like, you could tell he, yeah, he, he took it right down to the wire. He, yeah, right. He needs a day off. <laughs> totally. Remember, I remember Hillary got that way. You know, yeah. Obama got that way. They all totally. got that way right toward the end after I mean, screaming you, every day. For, every single day. <laughs> every day. You mean like 10 times a day, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but here's the thing. With that razor-thin margin, there are still, here's why they haven't called it, there are still, as of this morning, 3,300 
provisional, remember the difference is 1,700 votes. There are 3,300 provisional ballots to be counted, and there are 5,000 absentee ballots that came in the very last day that have not yet been counted. So he, the 1,700 difference, and there are 8,300 votes, ballots Man, at least to be counted. So, so this could still go either way, again, with the luck of the Irish. <laughs> Danny O'Connor, Danny O'Connor could still win it. But the bigger picture is, even if Balderson is um, is declared the winner and, and gets this seat until November, this still scares the hell out of the Republican Party. And it is a huge show of strength on the part of the Democratic Party. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to BS you. I don't want to spin you. Look, in politics, close doesn't count. This is not horseshoes. Politics, if you win even by the narrowest of margin, you win. A win is a win is a win is a win. But you can have a show of strength, and this is definitely a show of strength. Think of it this way. Donald Trump carried this district by 11 points two years ago. So this district, which is a ruby red district, which has been in Republican hands for over 30 years, which Donald Trump carried by 11 points. This district yesterday went from plus 11 for Republicans to plus 0.9. And this is the kind of district that Republicans have to not just have to win, they shouldn't even have to fight for. This is one of those districts that they should say, this one's in the bank. Let's go work on some of these marginal districts. Okay? Now, looking ahead at November, again, here's why this is so important, friends. There are over 80 districts like this. Districts that Republicans should be able to count on, but because of the Democratic surge this year and because of Donald Trump, and the disgust of American people at Donald Trump, and because of the popularity of something like Medicare for All, there are some 80 districts that are now, again, that should be safe Republican, no, but are not, that everybody, Charlie Cook, CNN, all the people who look at this, uh, Steve Shepard, our friend from uh, Political Yesterday, that they consider all of these, some as high as 90 districts, that are competitive this year, that Republicans like this one, are going to have to fight for, fight for. And out of those 80-some districts, keep this in mind, Democrats have to win 23. Only 23 out of over 80. And they're all like that Ohio's 12th district. You know, uh, one of the persons that I've worked with a, a long time, he's a good friend, I don't think anybody knows politics better or sums it up better than John King, with the magic map over, uh, magic wall, magic map, whatever they call it, uh, over at uh, CNN. And last night, again, with the, with the district too close to call, not calling it, but Donald uh, John King explaining why this has a powerful message for Republicans. This district is ruby red Republican. The fact that it is so close 
is a big deal. If you look ahead to November, let me switch again for you. Here's what you're looking at. We have 95 House races that we view as the most competitive go. going 95. forward. 82 of them are held by Republicans. Republicans are on defense. If they're worried about this district, ruby red here, guess what? No matter what happens in the next couple hours, every one of these other Republicans goes to bed tonight a little more nervous. Yep, that's it. They're that's gonna... the thing. Yep. Whether or not this goes, like you said, whether or not this goes for Danny O'Connor or not, who knows, right? Right. But if Republicans can't hold on to this one, imagine all the other Republicans that are going to be on the ballot in November where it's closer. Right. Or to put it another way, if Republicans have to spend so yeah. much effort, resources, and money, money to hold on by a whisker yeah. to a district like this. As the New York Times points out this morning, in this district they spent millions and millions of dollars on scorching negative TV ads. They forced Kasich to do what he didn't want to do and make an endorsement at the last minute in this race. They beat up Nancy Pelosi and tied her to O'Connor, even though O'Connor said he was not going to vote for her, would not vote for her for speaker. They, so they, they had to drag Nancy Pelosi in again. And they had to bring in the president of the United States on the last weekend for a great big rally. And even with all of that, they still haven't won it. And even with all of that, if they do win it, it'll be like one point. So they've gone from, again, from plus 11 to 0 0.9. That's it for Ohio 12. Keep your eye on that, of course. And then there are a lot of other important races um, uh, in primaries in Michigan, in Kansas, and in um Mm, what other state? Oh, Missouri, of course. Yeah, in Missouri. Uh, in Kansas, at this time, uh, Donald Trump's candidate, Chris Kobach, the racist, anti-immigrant, phony voter fraud Secretary of State of Kansas. Cannot be overstated what a terrible human this he, guy absolutely. is. Absolutely. He he's worse than Donald Trump, yeah. I think, right? But at, at any rate... Uh, he challenged the incumbent governor, incumbent Republican. This is a primary on the Republican side. Challenged the incumbent Republican governor, and at the moment, this also was really too close to call. Most people are saying Kovac, though Kovac uh, will uh, uh, emerge. He has a even a more narrow margin than in Ohio. Uh, Kovac ahead of uh, Governor Collier by forty point seven to forty point five. There are still some provisional absentee ballots to be counted there. Uh, the co incumbent governor could uh, could hold on there, um, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. In Michigan, interesting story in Michigan, uh, the primary there was really on the Democratic side, uh, and it really was down. It was a three-way primary. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is the... Controller, maybe she's has statewide office in Michigan. Now I forget exactly. Sorry about that. Exactly, but but she's the party candidate, the establishment candidate. Gretchen Whitmer has run statewide, holds statewide office. Uh, she was challenged by uh, a young doctor, Muslim American, progressive. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, more of again centrist Democrat, uh, a young doctor by the name of Abdul El Sayed who got the endorsement of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went out there, held, held a big rally with him, uh, but the pri it uh, d didn't work. 
the primary yesterday, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, a resounding victory over uh, Dr. El Sayed. Uh, she won by last numbers I saw, fifty-four point three percent to twenty-nine point six percent. Not uh, close. Not close. <laughs> not close. Not close. Uh, and by the way, she may be. She, I mean, she's no right-wing Democrat. She's a good, solid Democrat, and I think she fits Michigan. Uh, and I think she's got a great chance of being the next uh, governor of Michigan. But one of the biggest stories that kind of went on, uh, people didn't pay a lot of attention to ahead of time, happened in Missouri. And uh, you know me, I'm a big union guy, and our show is uh, enjoys the support of a lot of our uh, great labor unions and has for many, many years. And they were, they had a, unions had a great resounding victory in Missouri yesterday. Last year, Missouri became the 23rd state in the country to be a right-to-work state. Um, which is bad for American workers because it means the right to work more time for less money. Uh, it's an anti-union measure. Missouri adopted that uh, last year, and this year the union successfully got over 300,000 signatures, put Proposition A on the ballot, which is a very simple question. Do you support the right-to-work law that was signed into law by the governor last year, pushed through the re- like it was in Michigan, by Republican legislature, signed by a Republican governor. Do you support that? Yes or no? And the no's won big time. The final vote I saw, 63 said no, 37% said yes. And it was the... Uh, That's all, huge. All the unions were involved in that. The AFL-CIO, Richard Trumka, led the way. Uh, I know the machinists were involved. The iron workers were involved under President Eric Dean. Uh, machinists under President Robert Martinez, and other almost all the unions were involved there, and a huge, huge, huge victory. Um, 63 again to 37%. Uh, by the way, that's the first time that unions have scored a big statewide victory since 2011 when Ohio did the same. John, John Kasich, one of the first things he did was put in an anti-collective bargaining measure like Scott Walker had done in Wisconsin, I remember they had the recall in Wisconsin on that, which unions lost. But in Ohio, they didn't try to recall Kasich. They put Kasich's anti-union measure up for a referendum and beat it back. So um, this, is a, this is a sign of a new life, new life, uh, uh, and a reinvigorated labor movement yesterday uh, in Missouri, which has lots of repercussions nationwide. My biggest takeaway from that is that, like, look, I think it, I think we've been very open and honest about this on the show. Like, under the eight years that Barack Obama was president, progressives and progressive causes got a little lazy, mm-hmm. got a little lazy. And they took some serious losses, and they saw a lot of the ground that they had taken. They, they lost a lot of it. And, like, now— it should be painfully obvious to everybody that these issues really, really matter. And like, yeah, you know, whether but, or not the unions found their voice in terms of, of selling this and pushing this and making sure that people knew the issue or whether or not progressives have sort of found mm-hmm. their voice to sort of make the case against Donald Trump. But we're at a moment now where it's really important. Yeah, I think what I think what what we see in Missouri and what we saw up in Queens with uh, AOC, as they call her. Uh, and what we saw in Ohio 12 is hustle, hustle, hustle. There's no doubt that the energy, the momentum, the excitement, the drive, 
the determination is on the Democratic side, particularly among the progressives, and that's what won the day uh, in, in Missouri. Meanwhile, over, and we'll talk more about the elections a little bit later with uh, Kevin Robillard from, uh, from HuffPost. Uh, meanwhile, over in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river here, just a stone's throw, the Paul Manafort trial continues. It was Rick Gates' second, uh, Rick Gates' former business partner of uh, Paul Manafort and former deputy campaign manager for Donald Trump on the witness stand, uh, really got a drubbing, really got a grilling from the defense attorneys, uh, Paul Manafort's attorneys, who, yes, again, uh, uh, got him to admit, as he had the day, pardon me, the day before, that, yes, he had committed crimes. Uh, yes, he had done so at the direction of Paul Manafort, he keeps saying. Uh, Paul Manafort knew what he was doing. Uh, they falsified tax returns. They laundered money. They um, stole money. He stole for Paul Manafort. He stole from Paul Manafort. And yesterday, they also got him to admit that he, Rick Gates, uh, enjoyed a certain lifestyle of his own, had his own apartment in Paris where he, where he entertained uh, uh, a mistress and had an extramarital, transatlantic extramarital affair, if you will. Um, all of this to undermine his credibility. Again, the question is how that plays with the jury. Uh, notice that their effort is, the effort on the part of the defense, which I find rather strange, is not to deny that Paul Manafort committed crimes, but that Rick Gates also committed crimes. So therefore, Paul Manafort is not guilty? I don't think that adds up. Yeah, no. Right? I mean, I think it just reinforces that, yes, both of these guys were crooks, and one of them is cooperating with the federal government, and the other one is not. But that doesn't make the one is not cooperating Innocent. It doesn't not cancel guilty. out. It's, it yeah. doesn't cancel out. So I think it's out. a strange kind of defense. They've not at all said what Paul Manafort, that Paul Manafort. Now, maybe down the road they will, but they have not said Paul Manafort did not commit these crimes. They're saying that Rick Gates made him do it or that the Russian oligarchs made him do it. Uh, at any rate, Jonathan Carl from ABC News sort of summed up yesterday in the courtroom uh, in Alexandria. The defense portrayed Gates as an admitted liar who has acknowledged embezzling money from his former boss, asking, after all the lies you've told, do you expect this jury to believe you? Gates responded, I do. They also tried to paint him as someone who had a, quote, separate secret life with a mistress in London. There's another Rick Gates, a secret Rick Gates in London, the defense asked. Gates admitted the affair and said his wife was aware of it. Um, there's one other aspect of this whole thing, right, is you've got to say, remember, okay, this doesn't have anything with the, to do with the Russian investigation, but these are the two people that Donald Trump hired to run his campaign. Two embezzlers, two crooks, two liars, you know, two criminals. Something, something, birds of a feather. <laughs> like These are the people, the two men that Donald Trump hired to run his campaign. And after Paul Manafort was fired, Rick Gates continued all the way to the inauguration, through the rest of the campaign and through the transition all the way to, uh, to the inauguration. So just keep kind of keep that in mind.
one other quick, uh, one other just thing that happened in the news yesterday I think it's worth mentioning. You probably saw that the CEO of Pepsi, uh, her name is Indra Nuhi, who is a historic CEO for a couple of reasons. Number one, she's one of the few women CEOs, and she's the first Indian-American CEO of any, uh, any of the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, but the point that was made yesterday, which I think is, is sad and worth noting, is with her resignation, the number of CE, female CEOs among the Fortune 500 shrinks from 32, which it was a couple of years ago, with her departure down to 24 today. 24 women out of 500 Fortune 500 companies. We're going from 32 to 24. In other words, we're going backwards. You would think this would be a time, as there are more women getting elected to Congress, not enough yet, more women elected in the Senate, that more women senators than ever before, not enough yet, that there would be more and more women taking the top jobs in these American corporations. It's going in the other direction. Not good news. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with hiring practices, obviously, and um, male chauvinism in the boardrooms. Yeah, totally. And look, it's, I mean, it's a reminder that we are not that far removed from, you know, giving equal rights to women. Like, it, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And we're still, and we'll have a lot, we have a lot of work to do, but like, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Just, uh, just worth remarking that little transition yesterday. Uh, meanwhile, uh, what's happening on the – we got sanctions more – the new san sanctions renewed against Iran this week. Where does that leave us and what's happening with North Korea and all, all, everything else on the foreign policy front? We check in with foreign affairs correspondent for Politico, Nahal Tuzi, joining us next year. Sorry to butcher that name. On the Bill Press Show, quick break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. Hey, here we go. Wednesday, August 8th. Hello, folks. Great uh, to see you and welcome to the program live from our nation's capital. It is the Bill Press Show brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, the one and only Leo Girard, uh, rep leading the United Steelworkers, America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program, and welcome to the table, Nahal Tuzi from uh, Politico, who covers foreign affairs for Politico and dabbles in some other stuff as well. I yeah, know. I'm a woman of many talents. <laughs> <laughs> Niles, nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having uh, me. And before we jump into uh, the foreign policy front, we've been talking about a lot about last night, yesterday's big um, um, primaries and a special election generating some comments. Peter? Yeah, lots and lots and lots of different comments on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, KG says Republicans have deep pockets and party loyalty. The vote will always be closer than it should be. Uh, Marsha also says, don't lose sight of the fact that in most cases, provisional ballots are doled out to the people who are rarely or to the people who are believed to vote Democratic and rarely to Republicans, which is an interesting little 
I, mean, I hope she's point. right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I do, too. Uh, Phil says Trump definitely made a difference in Ohio 12. A 20-point swing to the Democrats <laughs> is definitely a difference. Yes, absolutely. And I mentioned the story earlier about how the Donald, the Trump administration is looking to roll back uh, regulations on... Uh, asbestos. Asbestos, that's right. right, yeah. Another commenter says more asbestos equals more lung cancer equals more big money for big pharma. Uh, also, don't forget we have our chat room on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Price Show. You can watch the show and we have the chat room running uh, the, the, uh, during, the, during the program. Uh, Cheryl says, we need to avoid that purity trap. Ohio shows us that we do have a real shot at the House and we need to take the House to get this country on some kind of equal ground. If you have a comment, you can find us either on Twitter at BP Show in the chat room at youtube.com slash the bill press show uh and uh give us your comments we'll read them on air and remember what uh, john king told us uh, last night on cnn and this morning the clip we played on the show that there are 95 such districts which are considered competitive districts around the country um, when you see how narrow the margin is there in ohio 12 uh, democrats only need to pick up 23 of those 95 districts to take back control of the house so it is definitely uh, doable now, what is doable about Iran? Let's shift to that for a second. Um, so uh, for what happened this week, right? The sanctions that had been removed as part of the Iran nuclear deal were slapped back on by the United States. Correct. This is the first round of sanctions that's uh -huh. being slapped back on. Uh, and it covers stuff like, you know, aluminum, steel, uh, precious metals, that, that sort of thing. Um, the automotive industry. But uh, another arguably more important round of sanctions is scheduled to be slapped back on uh, in early November, and that would target Iran's oil sector. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's pretty intense, though, and Iran's economy is already in really, really bad shape. So. And what are the European countries doing about, about this? Well, the European countries are very much opposed to the reimposition of U.S. sanctions, um, and they are... Uh, saying that they will protect any sort of any companies um, that decide to ignore the U.S. sanctions, uh, any European companies, uh, yes, and yeah. invest in Iran. But that's, you know, they're, they're talking about something like a blocking statue and stuff so that they can protect against these uh, U.S. sanctions. But um, that is not really seeming to work uh, when it comes to the actual companies. Like they're just, for the most part, they're leaving the Iranian uh, market because, you know, when you have so many U.S. investments, the U.S. is a much more important market. So why take the risk? Who does more deal? Who does more business w with Iran? Um, American companies or European countries? In, companies. In, it has to be European countries, uh, European companies. Uh, and that's because uh, the U.S. Uh, has long had so many sanctions on Iran. Uh, that it's very, very, very difficult for an American company. That's why I'm hard. Uh, that's why I'm having a hard time following the connection. If if that's true, that European con companies, which I would, even geographically, you would, mm -hmm. it's closer, yeah. right? You would expect, right, for oil pipelines and stuff like that, for sure. That why the U.S. sanctions would would be so crippling, if you will, to the Iranian, well, well, there's Iranian there's economy. two parts of it. Like the first thing is like that. You know, 
even though we had this nuclear deal with Iran and we lifted nuclear-related sanctions, there's still a ton of other U.S. sanctions on Iran that have nothing to do with its nuclear program. So even with the nuclear deal in place, American companies really had very little possibility of doing business in Iran. Now the nuclear deal is pretty much gone, um, and so these sanctions are back on. Now, the sanctions, though, what's important about them is that they also are, for the most part, actually, secondary sanctions. That means that the U.S. will sanction companies from other countries that do business in Iran, not just American yeah. companies. So that's why they could have such an impact. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. And is, so is our, what's happening inside of Iran? You mentioned the economy's um, pretty bad shape. And we've seen protests in the street. And we've seen them before, too. But uh, can can protests really make a difference in Iran? I mean, is our goal to take down the government of Iran? <laughs> well, if you ask the Trump administration, they say, no, no, we're regime not aiming. Change? Yeah, they're like, we don't want regime change. We just, we just want to change in the regime's behavior. <laughs> but then they... We don't want regime change. <laughs> we just want a change in the regime. We, we just, okay. Yeah, it's That's actually typical interesting. typical Trump double talk. <laughs> um, but the steps they are taking make it really clear that they want to do everything they can to put as much pressure on the Islamist rulers in Iran. Now, inside Iran... The economy, you know, it's long been mismanaged. It, there's a lot of, like, state sector involvement in it. It's very corrupt. Um, so there's just problems to begin with. But in the last few months, especially as they've known the sanctions are coming, uh, things have just gotten much, much worse. There have been all these demonstrations, and they're very widespread. You know, they're not just in, like, the liberal, like, northern Tehran areas. I mean, this is, like, across the country. Um, a lot of them has been focused on the economy, uh, people saying, you know, they're, they're dealing with inflation, the prices are going up. The value of the Iranian rial, that's their currency, has dropped significantly. I believe it's fallen by about half since April. Uh, so you ha- you're having just all these different pressures and people are getting upset. Um, and, you know, for the most part, from what we can tell, they're blaming the regime uh, and they're not really blaming the U.S. Now, that could change, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that people are going to necessarily become happy. I mean, they've been long. Many of them have long been unhappy with their, their own leaders. How secure is Rouhani? And, and from... Our point of view, I mean, Rouhani, we would have to classify as a moderate, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like a totally different spectrum over there. I know, everything's um, relative, sure. But. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, relatively speaking, he's one of the more moderate uh, leaders in Iran. And he's the president. Uh, he's got, I think, three or four years uh, left on his term. He is, it's his second term, so he's not going to be up for reelection. Um, it doesn't, you know, honestly, whether he stays or goes, it, it doesn't really. But really the, make a the difference. The real power is the supreme leader, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. right. The supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, he is uh, the clerical leader, and he has the final say on matters of state in the country. Uh, so that's his position appears to be secure, but he's pretty old guy, uh, and so mm-hmm. there's always questions about his health. Who was that crazy little guy who was president for a while, remember? Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> The guy who denied the Holocaust. Yes, yeah, yeah, he was a colorful guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's trying to make a comeback on Twitter. No, really. Yes, he's been tweeting some interesting things lately. Uh, it's, it's talking about love and unity or something. I, what can I say? Okay, right. <laughs> uh, now the other. So uh, when I was there at the White House, when uh, Donald Trump sort of surprised everybody by saying, "I love meetings. I I think meetings are important. I'll do. I'll meet with anybody." I'll, 
I'll meet with President Rouhani. Right. Uh, anytime, anywhere, no preconditions. Right. Is anything happening on that front? Okay. So people seem to like forget one thing about this, which is that this was in response to a series of questions from re- from a reporter. All right. So this wasn't yeah. like Trump, right. you know, yeah. on his own saying this. He was right. being prodded. He took this position. Nonetheless, it is the president taking a position saying, you know, he's willing to meet. Um, there is an, a venue that's coming up that would be a very good opportunity for the two to meet if they chose uh, for Rouhani and Trump, and that is the United Nations General Assembly. It's next month. Rouhani is expected to attend. Uh, and last year, uh, Trump reached out to the Iranians and tried to secure a meeting hmm. uh, with Rouhani, ideally, but you know, possibly others. Uh, and the Iranians were like, no, uh, they turned him down. Uh, and so, you know, they were very, very upset about how he talked uh, about them during his yeah, speech yeah. at the General Assembly. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not unprecedented for him to seek a meeting uh, with these guys. So so it could happen this fall at the U.N. It, it could. Right. I, I would not bet on it, but it could. Right. No, I was sitting right in back of that reporter and I wanted to ask, well, what about meeting with Robert Mueller? <laughs> you don't have to go that far for a meeting. How about a meeting there? No preconditions, right? But, you know, from you what know. I've read, it, see, it sounds like Trump, like, it thinks he can pull off easily a meeting Oh, no, 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 he does. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> he does, but his attorneys know better. <laughs> well, it's, you know, Bob okay. Mueller apparently flies out of gate 35X, right? Uh, yes. So maybe they can just meet there sometime. <laughs> yeah, Donnie Jr. can <laughs> is standing in line and Robert Mueller sitting there reading the paper. Uh, On another front, uh, what great progress has been made as a result of the Singapore summit with uh, Kim Jong-un? How many (laughs) nuclear weapons has North Korea destroyed? Uh, None. In fact, uh, the U.S. officials, uh, Bolton, I believe, John Bolton, said the other day they're still uh, producing fissile material. Uh, There's no end in sight to their nuclear program. They've apparently upgraded some of their facilities over in North Korea, but they've tried to get rid of, dismantled some other stuff too, but that might just be the older stuff that they don't even want to use anyway. Um, Basically, as far, okay, we know that what they claim are and we hope are remains of some American servicemen killed and never returned from uh, North Korea, that's happened. We're, we haven't yet confirmed that these are remains of American servicemen, to my knowledge. Right. But, but so that that was one good gesture. But in terms of the nuclear program, which was the whole port of the deal, right? So far as we know, there's really been zero change in their um, attempts to become or their existence as a nuclear power. Correct. Although there haven't been any missile tests. Correct. Um, Maybe because they didn't need them. Perhaps. Uh, and and also, let's not forget the North Koreans feel like they, they also made a grand gesture by releasing the three yes. uh, Americans that they held. Before the summit. Yeah, right. Before. Um, and the only thing the U.S. has really done, though, I mean, this is, you got to remember, the U.S. supposedly has taken its own steps. And the only thing the U.S. has really done is um, cancel the exercises, the military exercises with South Korea. So it might be that the North Koreans are saying, well, you guys need to do more on your end. We've done at least like three or four things. And we want we want talks on ending the war, uh, you know, the right. military truce or whatever. Uh, we we want to discuss normalizing relations. And the Americans are like, no, no, we want to end your nuclear program. 
<laughs> but again, the two sides don't really even have a common definition of denuclearization. That's the problem, right? Yeah. They, they, uh, well, yeah, they, they both they mean different things when you say denuclearization. Right, and it's also about like timing. I mean, the U.S. has said we want you to denuclearize first, and then we'll talk about all this other stuff like mm-hmm. normalizing relations, et cetera. But the North Koreans are like, well, no, no, denuclearization is something that's a process, and we'll do all these other things. And at the end of it, when there's peace, you know, then we'll maybe get rid of our nuclear weapons, and you guys can put the take away your U.S. troops from South Korea. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it's about what, uh, it's about substance, but also about sequencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just no... There's nothing. So there's a big question about what, if anything, was accomplished other than a good photo op uh, in Singapore. Uh, There are similar questions raised about what was accomplished other than a big photo op in Helsinki uh, with Vladimir Putin. Um, And there, part of the mystery is that the two of them were together in this two-hour meeting uh, where one would hope that we have... from thanks to NSA, write a transcript of what happened at that meeting, but nobody else was there with them. So except the translators, except the translators, right? Who aren't talking, right? And couldn't be expected really to talk, <laughs> right? Um, so what comes out of that summit? Um, do we know? And does well, anybody know? And does Donald Trump know? <laughs> well, if you go to Politico.com today, we do have a story. Um, we, uh, one of my colleagues, obtained a, a document uh, from someone who's been privy to uh, to what Russian officials say happened during this meeting. Yeah. And apparently, Vladimir Putin um, put out a series of requests, offered a series of requests. Is that a, if that's a thing you can do uh, related to arms control and weapons in space? Like basically, he requested that the U.S. and Russia keep talking about arms control and extend these current agreements that we have. Um, and he also wants to have some sort of an agreement about not putting any weapons in space. Uh, this is according to you know the, the source who, who who gave us this material and who saw this. I, I read a little bit of that. Who saw this document in Russian? Correct. Right. Right. So first of all, back up. This tells me, and earlier we heard that Vladimir Putin had uh, had also put something on the table about U.S.-Russian cooperation in Syria. Right. 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 So this tells me that Vladimir Putin went into that meeting prepared. He had a list of things that he wanted to talk about with some specific recommendations or you know suggestions. Right. As opposed to Donald Trump? I can't say anything about Trump, uh, but I can tell you that Putin is generally very well prepared at any meeting that he goes into. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think we know Trump's style, that he walked in... Some, probably zero, more of a freewheeling, yeah, freelancing Yeah, zero preparation, style. just think that the, the charm and strength of his personality, right, he could just win the day and, and get... But, get but we know one other thing. Let's not remember. Uh, let's not forget, uh, because Trump himself said this. Remember, he uh, they were talking about having Bob Mueller being allowed to interview the Russians. Oh, right. Yes. In exchange yeah. for the Russians getting access to interview oh, yeah. Americans, including an American right. ambassador. Right. Which Donald Trump said he thought was a great idea. Very generous suggestion on the part of until people pointed out to them that maybe it's not a good idea mm-hmm. and that it could violate a lot of diplomatic conventions for one thing, and they were like, "Okay, never mind, we're not going to do it." Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, it was two hours. I mean, my God, they could have talked about, 
you know, their love of poetry. I mean, any number of things that could have been discussed. Let me tell you, I am positive that Donald Trump did not talk about his love of poetry (laughs) (laughs) or they did not talk about Russian uh, painting or Russian dance <laughs> or <laughs> maybe they had a long discussion or, about Tolstoy and <laughs> yeah, Anna Karenina exactly, and... <laughs> right <laughs> you know they didn't go there no, there's nothing artsy about it at all but so this but this but the idea that again who knows what Donald Trump might have agreed to I mean yesterday he's he's talking about now having a space force and Putin is talking about Banning weapons in space? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure quite how to square that circle. I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I've been reading a lot of science fiction recently, so the idea mm. that maybe we do need some sort of a space force is it completely alien to me. <laughs> um, but no, look, look, you're saying this. Who knows what happened in that meeting? And, and yeah. that's actually, look, that could be used to the U.S.'s advantage, right? And this is one of the things that I don't seem to understand is like, the Russians are taking advantage of this information vacuum. They are putting out leaks and information yeah, saying, yeah, yeah no. we discussed this. He, they were going to do this. We agreed to this. Right. The U.S. has not taken advantage of this. The, the U.S. has not said, you know, well, we looked at it. We decided that this is what we agreed to because you could put, both put your spin on this. Uh, but the Americans have been like just not doing their best PR game on this, even though they could take advantage of the fact that nobody really knows what happened. But here's the reason why. I think it's pretty clear why, because Donald Trump doesn't remember what happened. And I'm sure that Vladimir Putin afterwards sat down with his X number of leaders, right, of the different two, and said, okay, here's what we talked about. Here's what I said. Here's what he said. Boom, boom, boom. Right down the list, right? Do you think Donald Trump did that with James Mattis and with John Kelly and with George or Mike Pompeo and the rest of them? No. Uh, No. He didn't, number one, because that's not his style, so far as we know, and so far as we've seen, almost two years now, and also because he's incapable of it. It's, yeah, I mean, there's no question that across the U.S. national security uh, establishment, there's definitely this concern about a lack of a policy process, this idea that nothing is really being written down, nothing is really being recorded, everything is done kind of in a Mad Lib style. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, whether Trump mentioned something offhand in a phone conversation to Pompeo or not, nobody actually really knows because Pompeo himself is very circumspect about what he'll there say. There's no but... unpacking, as they call it, right? Well, Where yeah. You, and, you have and a meeting, then you unpack the meeting with your staff. You come up with you know, a summary of conclusions, action yeah. memos. You tell yeah. the agencies right. what they need to do to implement these agreements. Right. There's right. been nothing. No. no. And Yeah. Again, I think it was a glorious photo op and beyond that. Um, but not, not a lot of time left. I did want to ask you about something else you've been working on, which is um, on the whole immigration refugee thing, nothing has really changed in terms of the administration's hard line on that, right? No, it's actually there's a strong possibility they're going to take an even harder line. Um, last year, they cut the number of refugees allowed to come to the United States to 45,000 from essentially what was 85,000. This year, they're talking about bringing it down to 25,000, possibly even fewer. Um, now, and Now, let's be sure we people understand what we're talking about here. We're talking refugee. We're not talking illegal immigration at the border, right? Correct. This is a totally different thing. These are people overseas who are officially identified as refugees by the United Nations and have gone through months and months and months of security vetting. Coming from? All over the world, really. I mean, everywhere from 
you know, uh, Afghans fleeing persecution, the Iranian Christians to Syrians, of course. Um, but this under this administration, it's been uh, very, very hard uh, to to get in any sort of refugees, to be honest, even though they said, let's have 45,000 for this current fiscal year, 45,000 people. They're only on pace to allow in about half of that. Uh, and the number of uh, Muslims and Syrians uh, and others has dropped dramatically. Who's driving this? Um, Stephen Miller. Oh, surprise, Ugh. surprise. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he is uh, the kind of immigration uh, czar at the White House. Uh, he knows about the issue extensively, and he has placed allies uh, at a number of agencies who completely support his very restrictive views on immigration in general. And the refugee program is one of the programs that they're trying to gut for the most part. And and so while they're, while they're really trying to build the wall and do everything about so-called, uh, you know, so illegal immigration, but the legal immigration even here, right. they're trying to, um, wasn't, wasn't at one time the goal just to do away with it or just put an end to it for a while? Or? They want to severely cut back the number of legal immigrants who are allowed to come to the U.S. And now the latest news reported by NBC is that they want to make it harder for the legal immigrants who are have already been here, many of them oh, for many years, yeah. to become citizens. Yeah, of course, all, all part of Stephen Miller's plan with the help of Jeff Sessions and, of course, President Donald Trump. Uh, Nahal, we covered a lot of territory here. Thanks so much. Thanks okay. for having me. All right, thanks for coming in and keeping us up to date. And when we come back, the great Eugene Scott from the Washington Post is going to join us here as a friend of Bill to cover all the rest of the news of the day. Hour number two coming up. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We don't know. It's too close to call. The Democrat, Danny O'Connor, may not have won in Ohio's 12. He still could, but may not. Nothing clear yet. But he sure scared the hell out of them. Hey, what do you say, folks? Wednesday, August 8th. It is the Bill Press Show. Welcome to it. You're part of it, and we love having you on board here as we uh, take off to take a look at the big news of the day. Most of it centered on the uh, primaries yesterday, big primaries in Kansas and Missouri and Michigan, and a special election, special congressional election in Ohio, in Ohio's 12th district, formerly held by uh, now Governor John Kasich where uh, Republican Troy Balderson holds a razor-thin lead at this moment uh, up against Democrat Danny O'Connor. 
and um, there are still some 8,000 ballots to be counted. Until they're counted, nobody will know who the real winner is. Take a look at that, plus a big Democratic primary in Michigan, a big Republican primary in Kansas, and a huge victory for uh, Democrats and for unions in the state of Missouri, of all places, which speaks well for Claire McCaskill's chances of holding on to her Senate seat in November. Uh, We'll take a look at it with the help of Eugene Scott from the Washington Post coming up. Your comments always welcome. We want to hear from you and your comments on the news of the day on Twitter at BP Show. And we'll get right into it. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty. Just a couple of other stories making news. A huge milestone for an iconic American product. Today will be the day that uh-huh. the 10 millionth Mustang will roll off of the assembly line in Detroit. The Ford Mustang. And I, no and I, and, I mean, one of the more iconic American vehicles, uh, their 10 millionth one is going to roll off of the assembly line in wow. Detroit. Now, look, here in, here in America specifically, uh, we're getting more and farther away from cars like the Mustang. They're not very fuel efficient. Uh, they, you know, they've got the need for speed, which I think a lot of people are going more for, like, if you are getting a gas guzzler, it's a bigger car, right? Like an SUV. But apparently, uh, the Ford Mustang is still very, very popular in markets like China and Germany. And look, we still sell plenty of them here in America. So much so that we've reached the 10 millionth, the 10 millionth Mustang. I must say some of my happiest, greatest years were my Mustang years. I had a black Mustang convertible. There you go. In West Hollywood, California. Hmm. That's pretty badass. I got to say, that's that's a Mustang convertible is Driving something. around West Hollywood with a top down and Priscilla, queen of the desert, blasting <laughs> over, this, over the radio. <laughs> there oh, there you awesome. go. Yeah, it was great. Great car. Southern California car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, we, we've talked this week about how Alex Jones has been suspended from... YouTube, uh, Spotify, iTunes, all kinds of people are banning Alex Jones because of his hate speech. Twitter has not banned Alex Jones. And yesterday, Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, sent out a couple of tweets last night explaining why. He says, quote, we didn't suspend Alex Jones our info wars yesterday. We know that's hard for many, but the reason is simple. He has not violated our rules. Hmm. We'll enforce if what? he does, and we'll continue to promote a healthy conversational environment by ensuring tweets aren't artificially amplified. What does uh, Alex Jones say about that, Peter? Well, I'm just happy to have. I'm still happy to have one platform. All the other platforms have gotten rid of me, but Twitter, which is uh, does a pretty good job of enabling Nazis and hate speech and conspiracy theories, I still have a home here, and I'm just happy to be here. All right. People completely, you, yeah, yeah. People completely. I mean, got very upset at Jack Dorsey about this because it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Twitter is very bad at this. Uh, no, no, they are, and uh, th- this is a chance for them to step up and clean house, and they uh, they blew it. Yeah, totally. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, here we go on a Wednesday, August 8th. How about it? Yes, indeed. Out in Ohio, Ohio's 12th 
even with the luck of the Irish, we're still not sure that Danny O'Connor is going to pull that off. It's very, very close with Troy Balderson uh, with a very, very slim lead. But it ain't over yet. And win or lose, Danny O'Connor certainly scared the hell out of them. What do you say, folks? Great to see you today. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday as uh, we the Bill Press Show kicks off our number two, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always, our nation's capital. We'll bring you the news of the day and invite you to join us by sending us your comments on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Uh, remember, we come to you on every platform we can, coast to coast, uh, from uh, online, uh, meaning online, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on TV, on free speech TV, and on the radio, look at you out in Chicago, WCPT, coming in loud and strong. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And also, welcome here to the studio, our, our good friend, here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour from the Washington Post, Eugene Scott. Mr. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Keeping up with uh, all the news. I'm over. literally reading Twitter as you speak. You, <laughs> you you never know what can happen. I know, I know. Yeah. you got to yeah. watch it. I don't know. Has Donald Trump been tweeting yet this morning? I've I've been focused on election results, but but you can check and well, let me he, know. Yeah, but he was tweeting in the middle of the night. I mean, I sure. got in the middle of the night. I went to check on Ohio 12, and there was a... Yeah. There was a tweet from Donald Trump mm -hmm. um, taking credit for uh, getting Troy Balderson... Uh, elected when, in fact, nobody has called that yet. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> except is, him. <laughs> as I'm sure you've mentioned before, this is a district that uh, Trump and Romney won by double digits, and uh, Balderson is leading by less than one percent. So, not really a, a impressive showing at all. No, not yeah. no, not indeed. Uh, and meanwhile, we've got other stuff to talk about. We got the special elections to talk about. We've got a little Paul Manafort trial going on for uh, just a little in, trial happening uh, in yeah. Alexandria. All these crazy Rick Gates uh, findings. Uh, oh man, man, <laughs> man! Well, nobody said he was an altar boy, right? No, no. But we did know we did uh, see Trump call Paul Ryan a Boy Scout, and now we found out that Paul Ryan finally realizes that may not have been the best compliment. I know. I took yeah. it. Duh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trump doesn't really deal with Boy Scouts at all. Like, <laughs> Uh, and the other thing, so I, I, I got to start with you with uh, our friend um, Don Lemon. Yeah. Who goes out to Columbus to interview uh, LeBron James mm -hmm. and talk about the school that he yeah. created and the foundation that he's Phenomenal established. Uh, right. And mm -hmm. a foundation with millions of dollars for, yeah. uh, for college scholarships. Somebody you would think would say, this guy deserves a Presidential Medal of Honor, right? I mean, he's yeah. an outstanding American. Instead, yeah. Donald Trump attacks him mm -hmm. and Don mm -hmm. Lemon, calling them both dumb. Yeah. Uh, here's Don Lemon's response yesterday, and I'd like to get your take on it. Sure. Well, unlike this president who lashes out wildly at anyone who criticizes him, I have pretty thick skin. And LeBron James, in addition to being a brilliant black man, a superstar in his sport and a hero to his community, is taking the high road, which is exactly where he belongs. So since this president, since he's fused so many insults so often, the president has called a lot of people stupid. Some of those people are white. But I would just like to note that referring to African-Americans as dumb, remember this is America, referring to African-Americans as dumb is one of the oldest canards of America's racist past and present that black people are of inferior intelligence. Right on. 
No, that actually is uh, very true. If anyone studies the history of race science and uh, the mindset behind many white supremacists and how they hope to influence policy and the resources that lawmakers allocated towards black communities, black schools, black neighborhoods, economic development, much of it was built around the idea that black people were less uh, intelligent because they were less human uh, than white people. And so this is not a, a new tactic. This is something that Trump employed uh, even before he got in the White House. You have to remember he claimed that Obama was a terrible student, despite never seeing Obama's transcript and uh, questioned why Obama would be admitted into Ivy Leagues. And he's also used this um, against Maxine Waters and just other critics that he uh has found himself uh, having to challenge who are black. And I will say one thing that has blown my mind since I've been talking about this for the last several days um, is the number of Trump defenders whose response is this was not a racist attack uh, because Trump calls everybody dumb and stupid. Oh, As if that's a really credible attack. The real challenge here is that every time you see uh, a high-profile black American push back on Trump that Trump has attacked, they are addressing a policy issue. They're addressing something related to immigration, something related to the Russia investigation, something related to education policy. And Trump just tends to dismiss them as a whole by calling them stupid. And the way his base responds to that is they conclude that this is a, a voice that I don't have to give any attention to. I am uh, looking quickly for you through here. Um, this is uh, Eugene. Uh, yeah. You haven't seen this yet, but this is my newest book, which comes out in September. How many books do you write a year? Don't I, this is I, th- th- it keeps me up at night. The way oh how, my how hard goodness, this guy works. I feel so. Uh, so I don't see this like unaccomplished. Trump must go. The top one hundred reasons mm. to dump Trump, and one maybe why we ought to keep him comes out in September. September eleven. We'll tell you when it's available. Um, but at any rate, I was looking quickly, but uh, I couldn't find it. That but uh, in here I talk about. His racism, his race yeah. as a t- Donald Trump is a racist. And one of the things I discovered in doing the research for this is back in um, in Atlantic City with mm-hmm. the casinos, mm-hmm. uh, he told people, oh, he didn't want uh, he didn't want black people doing his books because they're yeah. not smart enough to do the math. Yeah, they're they're count of quite a few uh, examples and, and many of them uh, tie back to his ideas of black people having inferior intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the weakest talking points from his side, Trump Jr. Uh, communicates this often, is this idea that uh, concerns about Trump's racism only surfaced when he started running for president. Mm-mm. That's not true. No. Anyone who's been paying attention to Trump in the business world goes back to the 70s. He has a track yes, record. Yes, He has a track record of treating people who are black differently than people who are white. He and his father were both fined by the Justice Department for not sued by yeah. the, for not renting yeah. to uh, renting is, apartments not to African-Americans. No. This is not new at all. Um, that's and that's so, the first time we ever heard of Don, this, of Don right, Jr. Right, and I mean... Not it, Don people, Jr., but Don. People just don't even understand how political journalism works. Of course, the attention that he received from the political press in the 80s wouldn't match what he 
now receives because he wasn't on anyone's political radar. But but things are different now. And I think the, the question the Republican Party has to ask themselves, this is a party that, you know, after Romney's uh, loss, did a, you know, self-reflection autopsy uh, saying we really are struggling with black Americans um, and uh, really put in plan some some efforts to try to win back well, uh, they, the votes. They talked about it. They yeah. talked about it, which is the first part of a plan, right? That's true. And That's true. Uh, didn't go much beyond that. It did. And in fact, it went the exact opposite direction with the election of Donald Trump. And that's why you see him receiving such poor approval ratings from black Americans. And what LeBron James is doing is really outstanding. It really is. And this isn't new for him. I I interviewed LeBron James in Phoenix when the NBA All-Star game was in Phoenix uh, because I was covering nonprofits and education at that time. And he Hmm. was building a playground in a low-income school district in Phoenix because you remember Arizona during the economic downturn, everything was like devastated. And he just wanted to use his funds to help improve the community. Um, And with all due respect, I mean, if we want to play this game, we can look at the Trump Family Foundation and see how committed they've been to uh, low-income communities and people of color. Now, wait a minute. They use the money from the Trump Foundation uh, to buy a great big uh, portrait of Donald Trump, which hangs at Mar-a-Lago. And they used it to fight the fight over having a big flagpole in front of that's, Mar-a-Lago. That's giving back, Bill. I mean, a, a nice <laughs> yeah, portrait right. of Trump is cre- contributing to the arts um, and uh, boosting the morale of, of someone, I'm sure. But the impact that it's having on these no, communities no. that Trump pledged to improve <laughs> on the campaign um, is, is obviously not what, what they do. Right. Yeah. And and let's not forget, this is the man who led the birther movement for five years. Yeah. And, and, in, and Don Lemon, bringing it back full circle, made a very important point on CNN yesterday. A lot of people have praised Melania Trump for praising LeBron James. Yes. Um, yes. And because her response, if you saw on Twitter, <laughs> was that he appears to be doing great things, which is very true. Um, but the reality is uh, Melania Trump has also further the birther uh, rumors. And so I think people need to be careful in reading this whole idea that like Melania is part of the resistance and it's just uh, trying to aid the left in Trump's downfall. There's nothing that supports that. In fact, there's more evidence supporting the opposite. When she has had to defend the president, when she's been given choices to defend the president um, or to call him out, she has not chosen call him out often. She's more likely to choose to defend uh, than call him out. And maybe she'll do something like this, which seems like a third option. So um, sort of in a related uh, issue, what does it say to you um, that with all the disgust that we had after Charlottesville, um, Donald Trump's comments, but also just the fact that suddenly uh, in a great city in the South, you've got white supremacists and neo-Nazis and KKK marching side by side under this banner of Unite the Right. Yeah. And now this group is coming to Washington, D.C. Yeah. and having a rally on the Washington Mall this yeah. weekend. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, well, because uh, we, we've had polling that most Americans believe that Donald Trump has empowered white supremacists, that they look at his campaign um, and his agenda specifically and the policies. It's, it's not just him, you know, calling NFL players protesting racism SOBs, but they look at the policies uh, spearheaded by Stephen Miller related to immigration. Um, and and they see someone who is an ally um, to, to Trump's 
credit, he has spoken out and denounced groups and individuals. But um, these groups like David Duke has gone on the record saying they just see more coming from this White House. It looks like what comes from their own meeting houses than the opposite. And he did say there are are some very fine people among them. Very fine people among white supremacists. You know, to try to be fair, I I don't think this Donald Trump did not sponsor this rally or whatever. I don't think he has. Have you seen anything of him speaking out against it and saying that this is not who we are? No. And I also don't think that this would have happened under any other any under press any other president. Definitely not in the last 40 years. It has not. Uh, but this right. is a community right. that has uh, felt empowered um, by this They do. By they this do feel presidency. empowered by this. By, you've got to say that, by this administration. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then to the extent, as we discussed a little bit yesterday, that at one point uh, Metro was considering providing special trains for these people. Yeah. You know, and, a, and a police escort to get right. them from the Metro station yeah. to the Washington Mall as if. Right, right. Yeah, I was having dinner last night uh, with a fraternity brother who's from a small town in Georgia um, that, you know, has seen, his parents have seen this, what looks like this uh, happen within their lifetimes. And he was talking about how absurd it would be uh, to have uh, workers, many who are people of color, many who are immigrants, create a friendly environment for these individuals to protest their humanity. Yeah, it, it's it's just a really difficult time we are in. And I think what we're seeing with these midterm elections and these special elections is that people are rising up and saying that this is not the America I want to live in or that I want to create for my kids. And they're backing candidates uh, who seem to feel the same way. Right. Um, as a member of the media, uh, we have seen some pretty troubling times lately, too. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump has had, it's been a refrain from him from the time he became a candidate and maybe even before. Well, not so much before because he he really exploited and used the media to great advantage yeah. in his business career yeah. Yeah. and in his TV career. Um, but once he became a candidate, certainly his constant refrain has been fake news right. and talking to the media. But it just seems to get worse. I mean, even though he's in the White House now, right? Yeah. It's get worse and worse, and this enemy of the American people, yeah. to the point where last week in Tampa, the crowd was so ugly. Right. Saw this some of this during the campaign, but it's again gotten worse. And Tampa was so ugly, but people were really fearing for their lives. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I've talked to reporters on the trail, especially women, um, and especially people of color who feel uh, very threatened and unsafe. Um, I know when I was in Alabama covering the. Uh, Senate race in December involving Roy Moore and Doug Jones. Um, I uh, was at the election, the results party, um, and just tried to get home as quickly as possible. I mean, I'm I'm from the newspaper that helped expose uh, Roy Moore, and so um, yeah. And as much as everyone talks about you know Doug Jones' victory. Uh, it wasn't a huge victory. And so, I mean, I wasn't I, I did not feel safe and comfortable just being out late at night in Birmingham the night that Roy Moore lost. Um, and I think uh, people don't realize the emails and tweets and phone calls and letters that we um, weekly because of the things that we write about. And I think um, Trump's base, I mean, I saw a poll yesterday, more than 40 percent want the president to have the power to shut down uh, bad media organizations. Um, And I I think that's troublesome. I think the flip side is, I mean, the media can overdo we are the true victims here in the story in terms of uh, the amount of attention the president gives to the, the enemy of the press narrative. 
I think most um, Americans don't sympathize with the media as much as we think they should. And whether that's good or bad is another conversation. But I think it is our job to let people know that this type of hostile relationship between a government and the free press historically has not ended well. And in fact, it's ended terribly. You know, I have to tell you, this is an aside, um, but you just reminded me, and Peter, I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, so the first time that I went on the road as a reporter to cover a political campaign was when David Duke Mm. was running for governor against Edwin Edwards. In Louisiana? In Louisiana. Yeah. And I got off the plane, and the first place I went to was Lafayette, Uh to the racetrack in Lafayette where David Duke was holding a rally. And of course, there, there were no black people there. Right. It was all right. you know, white people. And, and um, I was, um, I, nobody knew me in Louisiana. I was from TV in LA, right? Yeah. So it wasn't that they recognized me, but it got pretty soon just by people standing around and I was doing my stand-ups that I was not a big supporter sure. of David Duke. Yeah. Uh, and I was standing there doing a stand-up, and and this guy heard me, whatever I was saying to my crew in in, uh, in L.A. Uh, and he charged he charged me uh. you know, to 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 beat me up. Wow! Right? Uh, wow! Wow! <laughs> came after me. Goodness. Big guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my cameraman dropped his camera and docked him. Goodness. Oh wow! Wow! Goodness. Really? Yeah, yeah. Just knocked him out. So, so Peter's got some big shoes. To I was going to say, what do you think I got hired to work yeah. with Bill? I'm, <laughs> yeah. I run his board. I also am his muscle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was in that situation where the crowd really turned against me. Yeah. You know, and yeah. this one guy came up to me, and so, and we got we got the hell out of there. I wrote about this after the Tampa rally you mentioned earlier, and we obviously know that it's. Not all Republicans, not all Trump supporters, not all people at the rally, but enough people at the rally yeah, where it's yeah. concerning. And at best, part of the reason is that uh, these are people who really genuinely feel uh, forgotten and are looking at Trump to save them and see people in the media asking questions that they feel like uh, puts all of that at risk. And so, uh, you know, you're talking about a group of people who dealt with economic and cultural anxiety, trying to create anxiety uh, within the press um, and uh, hopefully um, encouraging the press to back down and not ask us uh, difficult questions. Uh, but that's that's not happening that's at all. That's our job. That's but, our job. But, but, but yeah, no. Yeah, I was in Michigan last week at the convention for the National Association of Black Journalists, and uh, people are really inspired not to go after Trump. It's nowhere near as personal as his supporters think, but to cover government fairly and accurately in a way that lets the people who elect their leaders know what's going on. But, you know, once in a while, I joined my friend uh, Larry King, who is still, uh, <laughs> uh, he's never going to die. He's still broadcasting, <laughs> still doing a, a show. I bet you uh, all have some, some great old CNN stories. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and Larry said to me, you know, and, and I usually he just asks the questions, right? He doesn't really sure. talk about his own point of view. But he was really upset about this yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. And what happened? He saw in Tampa. Sure, you know, and he said, "Look, I've been doing this for fifty, sixty years, and you know, it's never, never, never seen it like this before." And when I was at CNN, you know, and all these rallies and all these presidential things I've covered, I've never seen this before. Bill, what he asked me, what changed? Yeah. And I mean, I think what changed is, and it's true, you never, 
at George W. Bush rallies or right. George H. W. Bush rallies yeah. or even Ronald Reagan rallies, right? Yeah. Or a certain Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, you never saw this hostility toward the media. Yeah. It's Donald Trump. I think what changes you have a president who encourages it. I mean, on the campaign, he encourages it. He said, you know, I'll pay for your legal fees exactly. uh, if you yeah. it's assault Beat him up. Him. Beat yeah. him up. I remember the good old days when you could just could, punch somebody. Yeah, and get away with it. And, the, I yeah. mean, that the, that was coded language that he made that statement in the South after there were black protesters yes. at his rally pushing back yes. against his policies and platforms. And so, I mean, with all due respect, when you – I'm not that interested in hearing people – from that side of the aisle who defend that talk to me about incivility in our culture right now. Um, I, I, you know, I don't remember a lot about kindergarten, but I'm pretty sure like you were not allowed to punch people you disagree with. Like there's so many fundamental things people are getting wrong with what it means to be a citizen right now. I mean, you know, look, there are a lot of people that are angry. Yeah. Voters that are angry. Right. And there's a responsibility as an official or someone who wants to be an official running for office when you're in front of these crowds to not whip them into a fervor. Right. And Barack Obama didn't do it. George W. Bush didn't do it. Directed it uh, against any one group of Americans or certainly against people of color or against certain reporters by name. Yeah, by name, by name. And you, I mean, it's really interesting. You really see the power and influence that a leader has and how they can use it for good or how they can use it for bad. Yeah. You know, I I kept thinking when I saw that crowd at Tampa that that was a time for a John McCain moment when when he was a candidate and this woman said something about he's just some, you know. He called him a Muslim. That's right. Called him a Muslim. Called him a Muslim. Muslim. I said, no, ma'am, he's a God-fearing, whatever good yeah, American yeah, who just yeah. I just disagree with his policies. Yeah. You know that was a real moment of leadership and courage on the part yeah. of uh, and yeah. and and that was a time when Donald Trump could say, "No, no, no, they've got their job. They're doing their job. Let's just focus on what we want to talk about." Yeah. Right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. No. But no. I mean, incapable. Incapable of doing yeah. that. It's really interesting. Uh, we had a piece in the Washington Post, I believe, Sunday, uh, where uh, Trump was complaining about him believing he's not receiving enough credit for all of the good things that he is doing um, and rallies and Twitter would be a great opportunity to remind people of all the great things that have happened. Uh, but most of his time at rallies is not spent reminding people of how he's making America great again. So he did have this uh, tete-a-tete, this one-on-one meeting with Arthur Schultzberger, the publisher of the yes, New York Times, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, which, by the way, was supposed to be off the record. Isn't until, that fascinating? Until Donald Trump put it on the record and put the his own spin on it. Like nobody had to know. Nobody had to know. I, you know, I think about how the Post is keeping track record of the misstatements, false statements, lies, whatever you want to tell them. And so the number gets higher and higher uh, because Trump speaks in ways uh, that, he doesn't have to that revealed to many people that he's less honest than uh, yeah. he should be. Uh, right. And Arthur Schultzberger had to come out and say, he, no, yeah, that's here's not what, what I told yeah. him. Yeah. yeah, I told him, your words are dangerous. They're right. un- they're, you know, you're, you're wrong. Uh, yeah. They are troubling and dangerous. Yeah, no. It's, and getting worse. It's, it's uh, great. As I recall, by the way, that, that article uh, last week on the front page of the Washington Post, 
the number was 5,338 or something. What well, I forget uh, what it was. I mean, was, it was last it was, week, was, though, so it's probably that's higher true. now. But it was an average of 7.6. A day. A day. Yeah. And he has more than doubled this year the yeah. pace yeah. of misstatements yeah. or lies, whatever we want to call them. Well, you've, you've seen, you know, some tweets when you get up in the morning and, like, there, there'll be, like, 10 tweets since you've been asleep. I mean, those types oh, yeah, of things. No. Every uh, day. Yeah. yeah. First thing I do, sadly, yeah, <laughs> sitting on the That's side your, of my your bed. Your meditation is, app. As I, 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 I look to see <laughs> whether what he's tweeted since yeah. I went to sleep or yeah. while I was asleep. Yeah. yeah, to see where the conversation is going. Um, Has he had a uh, such as a one-on-one meeting with Jeff Bezos, the publisher of the uh, not, Washington Post? <laughs> not that I know of, um, <laughs> but I'm sure if... Uh, Nor with you. Yeah, cer- certainly not with me, but I'm sure if he meets with the Amazon Washington Post, as he likes to call it, and misrepresents <laughs> what he said, uh, Jeff Bezos will make that publicly known. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a fascinating time uh, right now, and seeing people respond to it, it's been really interesting. In terms of those of us who practice and believe in the First Amendment, sure, um, should we be concerned, as vehemently as we disagree with him, that Alex Jones has been shut down on Facebook and Google and Amazon? You know, I I've been paying a lot of attention to the slippery slope arguments. Um, try to hear the validity in them. Um, and uh, He does have a First Amendment right as well as you and I do. He does. He oh. really does. Um, and uh, there's reason, obviously, to be concerned about his speech and the, the conspiracy theories that he uh, perpetuates and the ramifications of them, what people uh, do and say once they have embraced a lie as truth. Um, and we've seen that with the whole like Pizzagate uh, thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think the, the reason why this point is important is because it's not just ideas when it turns into actions. When you have people who believe what you are uh, perpetuating and they are going to do something as a result, the, then that is something worth paying more attention to. But as someone who you know has unpopular opinions nowhere near comparable to anything he, he you know he he mm-hmm. communicates it is concerning um to see how subjective some organizations are in the decision making process yes yeah, i think the difference is and we talked about this uh and uh, to make quickly and then move on is um that while he does have the first amendment right um a private company uh-huh like Google does have a right to say, yep, yep, yeah, you can say yeah. whatever you want, yep. but I don't have to carry you. Right. CNN can say, you can say whatever you want, but I don't have to put you on my air, right? You do not have, the First Amendment does not give you a right, right. to appear on any television station, yep. in any newspaper, on any radio show that you might want to. So, and and the reality and, is if people- That is not a violation of his First Amendment right it's to not. say, no, you can't be on my show, I don't right. want you on my show. Yeah, that's not how it works. And I think a lot of times when we see sure. people express their frustration about the free press and uh, what uh, the right. First Amendment means, it, they display a misunderstanding of it. Worst case scenario, all of Jones supporters, if they really believe in his mission, they could create their own Facebook. Yeah, and he can right. be on that. Well, I just want you to know you are very welcome here. Um, I appreciate that. I feel welcome. <laughs> you, yeah. Scott. And also, Kevin Robillard is very welcome. He joins us next from uh, HuffPost. 
and we'll uh, dive into with Eugene Scott here as well as a friend of Bill into the elections last night and the meeting uh, of what we see happening, uh, particularly in Ohio and Missouri of all places. Yes. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Here we go. The Bill Press Show, Wednesday, August 8th. Great to have you with us. Uh, lots and lots to talk about here on The Bill Press Show as we come to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Thanks to the good men and, women, men and women of the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, the UFCW, under President Mark Perrone, a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families across the land. You bet. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Eugene Scott from the Washington Post here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Uh, Eugene, always good to have you with us. Always good to be here. And we are joined by uh, Kevin Robiar joining us here at the uh, at the table, the round table. It's a little whatever, uh, oblong yeah. table. Uh, <laughs> from uh, HuffPost, who's been up all night tracking the uh, elections. Uh, hello, Kevin. Good to see you. Great to be on. Let's start. Eugene uh, and I just barely touched on. We're waiting for you to really dive into mm-hmm. Ohio 12. Uh, this is the... Uh, District that Donald Trump carried by 11 points should mm-hmm. have been a safe one for Republicans. Mm-hmm. What happened? The same thing that's happened in all these previous special elections. There's a surge of Democratic turnout, uh, which in this case most people were expecting. Um, these have basically all the special elections that have taken place have taken place on fairly safe Republican territory, uh, with the exception of one that took place in Los Angeles, which yeah. was safe Democratic territory. Yeah. Uh, and so really it safe was— Safe Republican territory, and yeah. yet every one of them has ended yes. up being— Very close. Very close. Um, different degrees of close. Obviously, both this and PA-18 have turned to be the closest. Uh, PA-18 was obviously where Democrat Connor Lamb won. So this was this one was—people were paying more attention to this one as a bit of a bellwether because it does contain some of the— suburban territory where Democratic gains have looked most likely this cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the suburbs of Columbus, um, wealthy, well-educated. This is the type of territory Democrats have tr- have been going after a lot of this cycle. Those areas did come through very strongly Democratic. Some of the more exurban areas um, really also came through for Balderson on the Republican side. So right now, uh, Balderson is, has a fairly slim lead. No one's called the race yet. Uh, there are still provisional and absentee ballots outstanding. There's a chance O'Connor uh, takes back the lead. Danny O'Connor is the Democrat there. So really, it's still a little up in the air. But overall, the what you get from this is this is another race where Democrats have massively outperformed. Um, there are 70 GOP-held House districts that are less Republican than this based on how much Trump won them by in 2016. So um, at the present time, uh, Balderson holds a lead of, um, by my count, 1,754 votes. Mm-hmm. It's 50.2 to 49.3. Mm-hmm. So the district went from plus 11 GOP mm-hmm. down to 0.9 mm-hmm. GOP, which, and if you, if you want, which that's tells if you, you a lot about. Yeah, that's, that's if you mean. use Trump. If you use Pat Tiberi, oh. the former Republican congressman, I believe he won by over 25 percentage points in 2016. Oh, oh so, really? Yeah. Um, that's another way we can look at it, too. <laughs> and there are 3,300 provisional ballots still mm-hmm. to be counted sure. uh, and 5,000 absentee ballots. So, Eugene, 
this is the time maybe when we see whether the luck of the Irish yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. prevails. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens in the general that could that could change uh, this. Uh, what strategies each side will be taking to turn out people who uh, didn't, you know, participate. And, and importantly, which we we should uh, remind everyone is that in the general that this is a special election which is only good until November. Oh yeah, yeah. And it'll be the same two the same players, two. yeah, facing yeah. each other yeah. uh, in November in the same district with the same yeah. kind of dynamics. Right. But we right. know uh anything can happen between now and November. Mm-hmm. Uh that could, you know, persuade voters to on either side to turn out in significant numbers or stay home. But as mm-hmm. Kevin indicated, it does have repercussions beyond Ohio. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, one group I'm looking at uh, this fall that I find to be interesting that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about are the <coughs> Trump triers. And so these are people who voted for Trump, uh, wanted to give him a try, wanted to see, mm. uh, you know, someone new or an outsider or different. They weren't like, you know, fully on board the Trump train, but they just did not enjoy Washington as is. A large percentage of these Trump triers are like, we try that. Let's try something else. Um, and uh, when Trump right. endorses people uh, who uh, he believes will, you know, further his agenda of what it means to make America great, these Trump triers are saying, this is not somebody I want to mm-hmm. get behind. Can, yeah. Do you see evidence of that, Kevin? Yeah, I think there is some. Well, I love that phrase, Trump triers. I yeah, heard of before, Trump triers. But... The other, the other thing I've heard some of these people call is never Hillary independence. Okay, these were people who <laughs> yeah. hated yes. Hillary yeah. Clinton, yeah. and thus were willing to give Donald Trump a shot. Okay, but these people might like, not necessarily dislike the Democratic Party. They just dislike Hillary Clinton. Sure, these two groups of people, I think, are um, a group that's worth paying a lot of attention to. This, I think, this group is a lot of white working class women. Yeah. who voted for Trump and mm-hmm. are now. Even though they might have been disgusted with his behavior, I think this clearly indicates that a lot of those people are now looking at Democrats. And what you were saying where when Trump endorses a candidate, it turns off some of those people. Um, If you look at the Kansas gubernatorial race, um, which is still up in the air, the GOP primary, Chris Kobach, um, a big Trump loyalist, famous immigration and voter fraud. I'm putting voter fraud in scare quotes. um, Crusader. um, He's been endorsed by Trump. And both Democrats and Republicans will tell you Chris Kobach could lose the Kansas gubernatorial race, which is remarkable. Kansas is a very Republican state. Uh, But the fact that he has associated himself so closely with Trump, who really, this is another thing that's somewhat surprising, Trump is not particularly popular in Kansas. His approval ratings are in the mid-40s, based on what I've been told. This is something that could put that seat at risk. Right now, he has a very small lead over the incumbent governor, uh, Jeff Coyler. Um, for the GOP nomination uh, for November. Uh, uh, yeah, and we, so we've jumped into Kansas, but mm-hmm. um, what strikes me here is here's a case where, uh, as in Florida, I guess, you have a, a, an incumbent Republican governor and Donald Trump comes in and endorses his Republican opponent. Mm-hmm. Right. I yeah. mean, that's really unusual for uh, for number one Repub- a president to get involved in a Republican primary, right? Mm-hmm. But let alone to take on a sitting right. in Republican governor. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. With, with a guy and endorsing a guy who could lose in November. 
Yeah. Yeah. Some some of the most interesting um, battles I think happening right now are within the Republican Party, mm-hmm. um, opposed to across the aisle, and just seeing people fight for what will the identity of conservatism be moving forward in Trump's America. Mm-hmm. And in terms of electoral impact, the primaries that there's been a lot of talk about. Oh, will Democrats in this primary process move too far to the left and alienate voters? We haven't really seen very many of those primaries where Democrats have nominated someone too far to the left right. and put a seat at risk, particularly a statewide seat, a, gu- a right. gubernatorial race, a right. Senate race. Yeah. We're seeing a few of them, particularly in governor's races, often because of Trump's interference. Ron DeSantis in Florida, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. is another one where Republicans feel very good about keeping that state. Rick Scott, finally, after eight years of being unpopular, mm-hmm. has in the past year or two become popular. Uh, which is why he's a threat in the Senate race. But Ron DeSantis and being that closely associated with Trump mm-hmm. sort of puts that seat at risk as compared to Adam Putnam, who is more of the establishment choice. But Trump's endorsement there has you know, yep. completely changed that it race. So Everyone I- now expects DeSantis to win more or less going away. Right. Uh, just just to put one final button on the, on back to Ohio for just a second is that I don't know whether you said it or someone. There are about 90, 80, 85, 90 seats like this who are mm-hmm. competitive seats, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats have to pick up 23 of them. Yeah. Okay. So given mm-hmm. those numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the the thing that A blue you want. wave could happen. Yeah. For the, the reason. Democrats the reason, could take back the House. Yes, very it's clearly. not crazy. What you want to do ultimately to take back the House is you want, and this, you know, when you think about it, it seems obvious, you want twice the number of toss-up seats that you need to win. Because okay. logically, you're yes. going to win about half the toss-ups. Right. Okay. That's why they're toss-ups. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So if you've got 90 the, you, have you more need than to enough. win 23, yeah. you've got a little margin for error. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, in many of these uh, districts, it's just looking very possible. Like, mm-hmm. it can happen. Mm-hmm. In ways that people just would not have predicted, um, you know, four years ago when uh, you remember when the Tea Party was just moving across the country, having an impact on a government that wasn't foreseen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, I want to get related, but off the topic of yesterday's elections for just a second, because Mm -hmm. Eugene mentioned um, the civil war among Republicans that you Mm -hmm. see happening in Florida. You see it in Mm -hmm. Kansas. You also see it the national level where Donald Trump last week going out and attacking the Koch brothers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which was magnified over the weekend mm-hmm. when the chair of the RNC, Ron McDaniel, mm-hmm. came out with a statement to donors mm-hmm. saying, do not give money to the Koch brothers. Mm-hmm. They can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, your money is wasted. The only place you should give money, if you want to help Republicans, you have to give money to the RNC. What the hell is going on? So I was at that Koch Brothers conference. Where oh, you were? Of the, in Colorado. Yeah, in Colorado. Nice. Um, this. Blame it on you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, if you want to. Um, this is part of a longstanding tension between the RNC and the Koch Brothers. Um, as ba- sort of the era of big money post-Citizens United era has happened, the traditional party structures, the RNC and the DNC, and to a lesser extent, sort of the DCCC, the NRCC, yeah. those groups, they've, have lost a little bit of power. Sure. They've lost it to super PACs. The big lost, money guys are yeah. kind of taken over. Yeah. They've lost it to big donor networks like the Koch brothers. 
The interesting part of this is this fight is happening as the Koch brothers were sort of simultaneously telling people, we're probably not going to spend as much as on elections as we want, as we previously had. They're still going to spend $400 million. Yeah. They're spending $400 million on politics and policy, which often people think that means elections. To them, that includes their lobbying operation, which is huge. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really, it's sort of unclear as to what exactly the boundaries of that is. That could also include, for example, they really help fund the Mercatus Center, which is a libertarian think tank at George Mason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That might include money they give to that. So it's really unclear what the $300 to $400 million is. Ultimately, they've really been spending less. They spent a ton of money in 2012 uh, trying to get Mitt Romney elected. That failed. That sort of that was where they really started to sour on sort of direct political spending. They mm -hmm. still engage in it. They're going to spend at least tens of millions on this year's elections. They already have spent tens of millions attacking Democratic senators. So it's been interesting, but they have been sort of walking away from this and more going into this thing where we're going to fund yeah. think tanks. We're going to fund. We're going to try to win the battle of ideas. Um, the other interesting part is there's a big fight between the RNC and the Kochs about a, sort of an obscure part of campaigning, which is data and where campaigns get their data from and how they yeah. target voters. Yeah. The Kochs established their own data operation, a company called right. I360, which a lot of Republican campaigns use. The RNC has hated this because, A, the RNC has its own data operation sure. that they it's, want people to spend sure. money it's on. it's competition. And it's competition. The RNC has always warned that you shouldn't trust your data to an outside source because you don't know what they're doing with it. And when the Kochs came out and said, look, there might be times where we'll back Democrats if they do something we like. Mm. That was exactly the opening the RNC was looking for, to say to these campaigns, have, you can't trust the Kochs. Have right? the Koch brothers ever supported a Democrat for dog catcher? Directly in terms of like electoral politics? Probably not. That no. said, no. look, do the they send out the occasional mailer saying, thanks Heidi Heitkamp for supporting Dodd-Frank rollback, which they did this year. Um, they've sent out other occasional things. There's a few priorities yeah. that they share with liberals, namely criminal justice reform and immigration, mm -hmm. where they've sort of encouraged Democrats or thanked Democrats for standing up on those issues. No, but they're not spending nearly the amount of money that they spend trying to, you know, ultimately defeat, say, Claire McCaskill in the Senate election this year. Yeah. I don't know, Eugene. What I love about this is, like, Democrats um, are known for forming the circular firing squad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's how they approach politics. Yeah. Then to, to see Republicans do it, I just find it delicious. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. I think that's how most people on the left are responding. I, I do think it's also important for people to realize uh, how few Republicans actually uh, exist in in America. About twenty seven percent of of voters mm -hmm. self identify as Republicans, um, and so a lot of times when people uh, are thinking about, you know, it's these, still too many, but anyway, <laughs> where they're thinking about these people who are still, you know, supportive of Trump at 90 percent and and just are oh, right. You know, but, at least it's, it's a it really is a smaller number than people mm -hmm. think. And people t tend to assume voted for Trump and Republican are interchangeable. And it's just not true. Yeah. Um, and I would also say, for, sure. for example, many of the people at the Coke conference, um, there's a lot of there's a decent never Trump right group there. These people might be Republicans, but not Trump supporters. Right. These, and these are big uh, Republican businessmen. Yeah, they, that, that it's almost exclusively, the yeah, it's exclusively right. businessmen. Okay. It tends to be people who sort of built up their own business uh, right. rather than sort of CEOs of a major company. All right, so we've like talked that. Ohio, we've talked Kansas, mm -hmm. the, sta the state that uh, the big story for me yesterday, one of the right. big stories, is Missouri. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Missouri is was a, a referendum mm -hmm. on the ballot 
to overturn the right to work law signed, mm-hmm. pushed by the Republican legislature as they mm-hmm. did in Michigan, but in Missouri, and signed by the Republican governor a year later, mm-hmm. uh, the unions got enough signatures to put that on the ballot, mm-hmm. and they won yesterday mm-hmm. to overturn the right to work uh, mm-hmm. legislation, sixty was it sixty three to thirty seven percent in Missouri? Yeah. And this is this is interesting because Missouri is a Republican state, but there yeah. are these Republican states with sort of lots of union members. Mm-hmm. You know, Ohio was that way. Ohio had a similar uh, result, which I they won in 2011. In 2011, uh, they overturned. I believe it was SB five was the name of the bill then. That was the John Kasich. Yeah, John kind of, Kasich, and yeah. then Kasich sort of moved to the center after that. Um, this is Missouri does not have a huge public se- or a huge set of unions. It's about 10 percent. Um, 10% of the workers there are unionized. That's not a huge percentage compared to a lot of other Mm-mm. places. So it was really interesting to see sort of working people who are not members of a union stand up for a union. That is not something that we've always seen in a lot of these political fights over unions. But doesn't it speak to the energy, the momentum, yeah. the drive, the determination that we see on the left, mm-hmm. particularly at the, these yeah, it definitely does. The the unions were able Ohio to 12 too. Yeah, the unions were able to massively outraise and outorganize the opponents. Uh that's partially because Eric Greitens, who is now no longer governor, was sort of trying to organize the mm-hmm. I guess the keep right to work effort and when he left office it sort of fell apart a bit. Uh but they were able to massively outorganize, massively outspend the other side. And the other interesting thing there is, you know, there were a lot of Republicans who showed up to vote yesterday in Republican primaries who voted to overturn this law. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was really uh, remarkable, the margin. I think most people going into this thought it would probably get overturned, mm-hmm. but I think what really shocked a lot of people, including some Democrats I was talking to in Missouri last night, was the margin. They thought it might be more of a 55 to 45 type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Michigan, mm-hmm. we had a Democratic primary mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the uh, the, the so-called establishment candidate. She held poli- statewide office, right? In uh, she was a state senate leader, a leader. State, in state senate, senate leader. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so not statewide, but mm-hmm. certainly with uh, uh, that experience. Uh, and her primary challenger was, or principal of the three, was mm-hmm. uh, the other two challengers was uh, Abdul, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Mm-hmm. Endorsed by Bernie Sanders yes. and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez mm-hmm. in her first attempt to uh, mm-hmm. take her popularity outside of Queens, mm-hmm. uh, boy, didn't come close. It no. was really one-sided. Last I saw, uh, Whitmer fifty-four point three, Al Sayed twenty-nine point six. What does that tell you about uh, the progressive movement in general or Bernie Sanders' coattails? I think it. One thing it indicates is that. The progressive movement can get candidates elected, but the places where it's had the most success have been the places where it's been able to match the establishment dollar for dollar. Hmm. When you don't have the money, things just get really hard. Whitmer, I believe, was able to air a million dollars worth of ads in the last week. Um, El Sayed Hmm. aired in sort of the low hundreds of thousands and was only able to get up in, I believe, three of Michigan's seven TV markets. Hmm. And when you get out spent like that, voters might just not know who you are. Sure. And that makes it really hard. So, but particularly when you go back and look at the places where there have been sort of big progressive wins, um, let's look at Ben Jealous versus Rashawn Baker in another gubernatorial primary in Maryland. So, I ask you about that. Um, yeah, that was a place. 
where Jealous was actually able to outspend Baker with the help of a super mm. pack. <laughs> so that made a really big difference. And so in some of these some of these things, people often want to make these big ideological takeaways. Yeah. Sometimes this just comes down to who whose campaign is better funded. Who in had, this case, it was Whitmer. Who had the resources? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that still very much matters. And mm-hmm. you know, I think a talking point we saw coming out of 2016 is that. Uh, money does not matter as much. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in these congressional races, it certainly does mm-hmm. when you're trying to get people to pay attention in a in a year, they're just not used to paying attention at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and also it, it it does, as you indicated, there's this, I think, a false narrative that the Democratic Party is threatened today by these progressives like mm-hmm. AOC, as we call mm-hmm. her, who wants to take a party so far to the left. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the I don't see the Democratic Party trying to do that in every state, in every district. No. And I'd have to say, I don't know, I'll say it, I probably would have voted for him because Bernie supported him, but um, that Gretchen Whitmer may be just a right candidate for Democrats in Michigan. Yeah. You know, she's she, she's no radical right-wing Democrat. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. She's, no. I mean, it's, it's interesting in that the sort of third-way people, the True yeah. centrists <laughs> are not are not the people winning these primaries anymore. And in some ways, the third yeah. way people yeah. are as much an insurgent group within the Democratic Party as Bernie Sanders is in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's just as much resistance to tacking right. to the middle that way as there so is. So a candidate like Whitmer, I guess, mm-hmm. is left, but she's just not maybe as far left. As, yeah. Or, and, and she is not a self-described democratic socialist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have to remember, I mean, most uh, parts of the country that even lean blue uh, are not like Vermont or Queens. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you when you talk about the base, I'm fascinated by when people talk about the base of the Democratic Party because I often wonder what part of the country are we discussing? Yeah. Because the base of the Democratic Party in the South uh, looks very different from the base in, in mm-hmm. Queens or the Midwest. And so whilst many of these ideas that are popular with progressives are um, going to be popular in the South, like the the ideas that things are going to be so radically uh, progressive in terms of like uh, some social issues, it's not going to fly as well mm-hmm. in, in Alabama. And we saw that with Doug Jones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great conversation, guys. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Kevin mm-hmm. at HuffPost, HuffPost.com, and of course, uh, Eugene Scott at the Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com. I have uh, not given up. I, I I am counting on the luck of the Irish for uh, Danny O'Connor <laughs> to pull off a big win here. Not a big win, but a win in Ohio's 12. Uh, keep your fingers crossed the rest of the day. Have a great day and come back tomorrow. This we'll be looking for is you. the Bill Press Show.